something I have done rarely in uh, 28 years. Um, but we decided to join this at least central United States uh, movement for this time called Explore God of some of the seven leading questions that people of all stripes, including people in the faith, have, as you'll see as we go along here. Today, as I said, is number two. We talked about, is there a purpose to life last week? Do I have purpose? Do I matter? And today we're talking about, is there a God? So, is there a God? Is there a God? Is there a God? Well, amen. Let's pray and go home. Lord, one. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. Last week, I mentioned a little bit about a man named Francis Collins. He's been the director of the NIH, National Institutes of Health, since 1983, I believe. And since 1993, he's been doing that, and in his spare time, also leading the Human Genome Project. This is a man not of normal intellectual acumen. This is what Francis Collins says. God gave us an opportunity through science to understand the natural world, but there will never be a scientific proof of God's existence. So the first caveat this morning that I'm bringing to us right out of the gate is this. No matter what I am going to say this morning, no one, no one can prove the existence of God. So let's get that right out there. The second caveat out of the gate this morning is that no one can prove the non-existence of God. Not Richard Dawkins, not the late Stephen Jay Gould, not the late Carl Sagan, not the late Stephen Hawking. So what does this mean, and why do I start this way right as the introduction? Because those who insist that there is no God, that God does not exist, do so on the basis that there's no proof. And we have to concede the point, as I just acknowledged. Which means the people who believe there is a God, that's most of us in here, hold their position by faith. But this also means that we can proceed in our defense by noting that the people who believe there is no God hold their position By faith. So, at the end of the day, the most ardent believer and the most rabid unbeliever holds their position by faith. So what this means is that a rational, sentient being would ask, do the facts then of the observable universe more greatly support the existence of God or the non-existence of God? So how about we proceed this morning as rational, sentient beings? Theoretical physicist, the late Stephen Hawking, died less than a year ago, writes the following. Up to now, 
Most scientists have been too occupied with the development of new theories that describe what the universe is to ask the question, why? On the other hand, the people whose business it is to ask why, the philosophers, have not been able to keep up with the advance of scientific theories. However, if we do discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable in broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, I have to throw in theologians, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Hawking's words are profound because he is saying that if the answer to the question of all questions shows that there is a God, it would be so important that God would make sure it would be simple enough for all people to understand. So enter now the late, the very late, medieval philosopher William of Ockham. He stated the common sense principle that is still in vogue today, that all things being equal, the simplest explanation to anything is usually the correct one. The principle cuts away or it slices, thereby leaving aside a host of potentially competing answers or arguments, leaving the simplest and the most likely explanation in place. That's why it is called Occam's Razor. Let me give you a a, a somewhat silly example, but I think illustrative of the principle, though in a pretty simplistic way. You're out in your car on a, you know, long, out there, Booney Thule's main road, and it's nighttime, no houses in sight, and you come upon a car that is parked on the side of the road. The emergency flashers are on. There's nobody in the car. What happened? Well, let's just look at three possible, and there are many, many other, but three possible explanations. First, a UFO abducted the occupant. A little crazy, right? A lot crazy, but it's an answer. B, the car was three days beyond its warranty and had a major computer failure in the engine that is going to cost thousands of dollars in repair. Or C, the car ran out of gas. Occam's razor would say the answer is most likely C. Now, obviously, this isn't foolproof but it is a tool for analysis. It is merely a common-sense approach to solving problems, especially very complicated ones. So, is there a God? As we go through this, we want to keep in mind Occam's razor. The Bible declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. The passage, as I excerpted it, begins with the statement that God is angry. Okay, why and with whom is God angry? Well, he's angry with the aggregate of humanity, past, present, and future, called mankind, who are suppressing and rejecting the truth of God in an ongoing way, denying that he exists. So, we can wonder, why should God be angry with mankind, who he knows are fallen by nature, simply for not being able to see that there just might be a divine creator who is God over the universe. I mean, some of the most brilliant people in the history of mankind have had great difficulty seeing that there is, in fact, one great creator who brought everything into existence. And others who have made great study of the universe trying to resolve that very same mystery. So it's not the easiest of questions to discern rightly. Stephen Hawking, again, arguably one of the greatest scientific minds ever. Some would say the greatest scientific mind ever. Spent his life trying to properly discern the origins of the universe, realizing that the answer to that one question would answer the other one. Earlier in Hawking's scientific inquiries into the mysteries of the universe, listen to what he wrote. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe. There must be religious overtones. But I think most scientists prefer to shy away from the religious side of it. That was from a book called Stephen Hawking's Universe. That book was written, meaning quoting Hawking, over 30 years ago or just about 30 years ago. In the interim years between then and fairly recently, instead of following where the Lord was leading him for reason that only God knows, he jumped away from faith into a Christless eternity. So if he, Stephen Hawking, the greatest scientific mind of all time, had difficulty figuring it out, and ultimately came down on the side that there isn't even the possibility of God, I'll get more to that later at the very end, what chance then is there for the billions of normal people through the ages figuring it out? And furthermore, how dare God be angry with those who don't come out on the right side of the argument? Well, the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God tells us it is because the knowledge of the existence of God is evident within them, not to them, but within them. Let's read it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Thinking back to Hawking's statement about the universe and origins of God. If we discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable and broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we in the universe exist. Why is God angry? Because God has revealed himself to everyone. It is not up to anybody's education. It is not up to anybody's scientific prowess or creation curiosity or their IQ. God has installed into our humanness the innate knowledge that there is a creator. The default position then of mankind is not that there may be a God and I need to find out. The default position of mankind is there is a God and you know it and you have to actively reject all the evidence around you to believe otherwise. The word is so clarifying when we let the word interpret the word. But the not too well thought out protest may follow saying, well, yeah, you know, that's hard to buy. Because, I mean, after all, there are civilizations and have been in, in earlier times especially, but even still today, there are entire cultures, civilizations, where there are no churches and they have no idea that there is even something called Christianity. And we have to say again, you're right. But everyone has seen and has heard and or experiences every day the wonder of creation, which is the primary way in which God gives evidence of what he has installed within us. I've given snippets of my own conversion. It is a bit confusing if you're of that somewhat uh, simplistic mindset that tends to permeate a lot of Christendom, and that is, so when did you become a believer? What do you mean you can't put a date on it? Oh, mine was so profound that I remember exactly the day and the time that it happened. Well, good for you! I don't know when I became a believer because I cannot remember a time when I was an unbeliever, meaning that there is no God. The default position, for whatever reason, to me was, and I was not raised in a Christian home or a religious household. I just knew from as early as I can remember by the marvel of the creation around me that there was a God. And how did that play out in my naive little life? I talked to him constantly, and especially when I was outdoors. I remember in... uh when I was in sixth grade, I was in, we were living in St. Louis, Missouri, one of our two-year hops all over the country for one reason or another. And there happened to be a very nearby monastery of irony upon ironies, looking back in my life. And I would go there because there was this great big pond on the monastery property. And I would get up Saturday mornings with the sun, and I would grab a strip of bacon out of the refrigerator because that was my bait. You say, what? 
Hey, let me tell you, in this pond, there were so many panfish that they, I literally had caught fish on a bare flashing hook. So the little bacon on there, I mean, who could resist bacon? Not even fish can resist bacon for Pete's sake. And so I'd go out there and I would sit there and of course I'd be all by myself and this was quite an expanse. And I can, I, as I'm saying this, I picture the area of the bank that I would sit on and I would just throw in my line and just talk out loud to God as if he was sitting right next to me. And I'd pull up a little, a little blue gill and I would sit there and marvel at the intense blue of their little gill. And I'd sit there and say, God, that is so amazing. You just throw it in and you're like, come on, you're making this up because you're a pastor. No, I'm telling you, I didn't know any differently. Now, when did I meet Jesus Christ? I don't know exactly. Because living in America, how do you not know about Jesus, right? Although that is changing quickly as we go down the road here. So I knew of Jesus. And if you had asked me, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said, yeah. And if somebody had asked me, do you believe you're a sinner? And I would say, I think I even know what that means. Yeah, no problem with that one. Well, do you believe that you need forgiveness? Yeah. Okay. But it wasn't until I was in the United States Army when I had this up-close-and-personal confrontation through a book by Hal Lindsey. No, not the late great planet Earth, but Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And all of a sudden, all these vague things that I knew about God and about Christ and about salvation were so poignantly clear And it was like scales even then were lifted. And my conduct, which was pretty moral for an airborne paratrooper, except for my language. You don't need many words other than the F-bomb when you are a paratrooper. It serves every part of speech that there is. And suddenly that was disturbing me. (laughs) Go figure. The Lord helped me get rid of that which only returned when I became a pastor. Uh, Oh, did that come out loud? (laughs) Got to keep it real. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Since the creation of the world, the passage says, since the creation of the world, well, that's pretty long ago. That means before there were any churches, before there were any synagogues, before there were any temples, before there were any ashrams or kingdom halls or tabernacles. We're talking about the moment of creation. We are told his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, not just seen, but clearly seen, being understood how, through what has been made. So that they are, most translations say without excuse. That's a good translation. The word is anapologeto from apologetics, meaning without an apology, which literally means without argument. They have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they, the whole of humanity, are without argument. How can that be? 
Go back and read what we just read. Because God has instilled and installed within every human being the knowledge of himself in creation and of his power and that he is the one God Almighty. The passage continues. But even though they, who's they? All of mankind, knew God, they did not honor him as God, or did they give thanks, but they became futile. Now again, the word there, futile, that's good, that's, that's okay. But it's better as they became empty-headed, which happens to be in the passive voice, meaning what? Meaning they were made and are made to be empty-headed headed by the creator that they are rejecting. That is, they were given over to worthless things. They were made to have incoherent thought processes. The judgment of God is on those who reject what he made known to them. So they became futile in their speculations, in their ideas, in their thoughts, in their warped and bizarre uh, views of the world and of their explanations of all things divine. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Again, all the verbs here are in the passive voice, meaning these are direct consequences of rejecting what God has made known to everyone. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So those who reject what God has made known to everyone are given over to their free will choice. And God allows them to declare, create, or adopt their own gods. Those gods may look like humans. Think of the Greek and the Roman pantheons with Zeus and Athena and Apollo and Mercury and Diana. They may look like a mountain, Denali, or Mount Vesuvius, a powerful, mighty volcano, or the oceans, or they may look like animals, or like planets, or the sun, or celestial bodies of other types, or may look like thunder, or they may look like hobbies, or fame and fortune. The substitutes are endless, but all mankind has a need. All of mankind has a God-given compulsion to worship. And if they do not worship the living God, they will worship something. Everyone comes into the world with the knowledge of God as creator and that he is the one and the only God Almighty. And every person has to make a lifelong effort to deny the obvious that there is a creator because the creation all around shouts to his existence. And that is why God is angry with those who reject his clearly revealed truth. Now, let's drop back just two verses from where I excerpted the passage in Romans chapter 1. What is the immediate context of the pericope? 
It is Paul's exuberance to share what is the great news of God's love for mankind. And it is great news, which is literally what the gospel means, the euangelion, the good message. In verse 16 of Romans 1, Paul writes, And I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The good news is, in fact, to the Jewish people, the chosen ones of God by God's sovereign decree. And then the good news is to the ta ethne, the nations, often translated just the Gentiles. So you basically have only two people groups on the face of the earth as far as God is concerned. You have the Jews and you have everybody else. And the good news is to the Jews and everybody else. And Paul is excited because that good news is, again, for everybody. But not everyone accepts the truth. So you see, all that is to say is that there are no real atheists or agnostics or skeptics. There are only those who have declared themselves to be God, deciding what they will and will not believe, despite what God has instilled within everyone. And guess what? That was the sin of Eden. God said, but I say, there it is. Not you, God. Me, God. Everyone who comes into the world has the opportunity, as long as they are still breathing and conscious, to acknowledge that there's a creator who is greater than anyone or anything, which means there is and can only be one supreme being. Why? Because God, by definition, is a being than which none greater exists. Which is why any notion of there being more than one God is intellectually, rationally, and logically indefensible. But we are easily masters of self-deception. The Bible tells us the heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately corrupt. Thank you, Jeremiah. So beware of the foolish dodges people toss up defending their rejection of God's existence. I have heard it numerous times in my life. Well, you know, okay, you do a miracle right now and I'll believe. <laughs> Well, if God wants me to show me or believe, you know, the, the believe that He exists, then He's going to have to appear to me and tell me Himself. Seriously, I've heard those two many times over the years. Hmm. The problem is, these are absolutely disingenuous. The person using this variety of escape uses it because he or she has confidence, first of all, that one, you're probably not going to produce a miracle, the odds are way against it, and that God isn't about to appear to them. And yet, despite the sham these kinds of questions are, they tend to put fear into the believers, because we are equally as confident that God's not going to do a miracle for them, or is he going to appear to them and tell them that he exists. And so we go away feeling like they've won this argument, and we go away embarrassed 
feeling quite impotent or worse. So take heart, believer. We have 33 years of recorded history documenting God's appearance to the multitudes. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus on earth. Jesus standing face to face before thousands and thousands of people. Speaking loudly, speaking clearly to the thousands and thousands with so many attendant miracles that John informs us in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John that they are only a smattering of all that Jesus did. And so the hard evidence we have from history says that the miracles and the speeches and the appearances from God did not generate faith to worship God with us. And in fact, it infuriated the multitudes who instead of falling in reverence before Jesus, cried out for his execution when offered his release by Pilate. If smart people were as half as smart as they tend to think, it would be obvious that a truly atheistic world is incompatible with life. Dostoevsky wrote, If God does not exist, everything is permissible. I've known some really smart people who could even quote that but have never thought about the implications of that in actual, their present day. And it doesn't matter what eon you lived in. It is just as applicable and profound. If God does not exist, then everything is permissible. And I will go farther or at least build on what Dostoevsky said. The fact that everyone has a sense, some kind of a sense Oh, it may be warped and perverted, not maybe, it is oftentimes, but there is within everybody this sense and this hungering for some notion of fairness and of justice. Everyone has a notion and a sense of good and bad, of right and wrong, even if they are miles apart. The point, though, to be made is to illustrate that everyone has an intrinsic sense of right and wrong, but without a God who defines what is just and unjust, without a God to define what is right and wrong, good or bad, is absolutely nonsensical. Ethical indicators such as conscience and a sense of right and wrong make no sense if there is no God. The fact that we all have an innate sense of right and wrong, again, to be repetitively redundant over and over again, is an indicator. You can see what I did there. An indicator of a God who instilled that moral sense. It is called the law that is written on our hearts. Which is why anthropologists have never found a civilization that does not have penalties for things like murder or for things like theft and why they have never found a civilization, as far as I know, 
where the civilization does not have some kind of rite or rituals of marriage. Now, they may be allowed in their culture to be married to five women or ten women or what have you, but the fact is they still have a system or a way of going about that to, in their understanding, whether it's rejection of God or just worship of the creation or the creator, whatever it happens to be, there is a sense there that we need to do something to solemnize this. This is a special moment, special occasion. But since there is a God, no matter how hard anyone tries, regardless of their worldview, it will be influenced by God's common grace that envelops all of humanity. Which means even atheists cannot and do not resist the essential elements for a peaceful society. Meaning the most rabid atheist will insist on some kind of a system of law and order. Yes, they will define what is lawful and what is not. But the fact that they know there has to be a system to order society again without a divine supreme creator to delineate and designate those things, it is absolute absurdity. Hawking's final book, written in just 2018, published last year. He died last March, I believe. In there is a section where he goes into an explanation of black holes. I would like to explain black holes to you in great depth. But there is no way. (laughs) They're black and they're holes. I don't know. Go figure it out. So he's going through this. My eyeballs are rolling inside my head. But I did get where he came out from. This is what he says. Remember what he said almost 30 years ago. Now, last year, before he died, obviously, we have finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist. Again, this is talking about black holes, and you'd have to read the explanation leading up to that. Because black holes are, are, if you can picture a pinhead that has a, I don't even know if I have the language right, a mass, okay, a weight, if you will, a density that is, that is greater than 5,000 Jupiter planets, the size of a pinhead, such that it absorbs anything that comes near it or into it, including light. And then he goes on to explain why without light, there is no time. You cannot have time without light. And since there is no light in a black hole, there is no time. We have finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist. For me, this means that there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed in. Got to read that again. For me, this means that there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed in. Well, in the words of Forrest Gump, 
I am not a smart man, Jenny. But Dr. Hawking's words are profoundly and inexplicably based on the rest of his intellect inept. Because after talking about black holes and the density of again, which makes it somehow impossible for time to exist, his conclusion is therefore God cannot exist where there is no time in which he can exist. But this presumes that God must be contained within time. And even adult like me understands that God is necessarily eternal, which by definition means he is outside of time. The lost soul, meaning Dr. Hawking, then writes... We have this one life to appreciate. Listen to this carefully. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. The man who says there is no God is extremely grateful for the opportunity to experience the grand design of life and the universe, which is absolutely nonsensical if there is first no designer, his word, to appreciate the design. If there is no designer, it's absurd. And furthermore, to whom is anyone grateful to if there is no grand designer? And you see what happens is, is the intrinsic innate knowledge that God put in, Dr. Hawking, cannot help but leak out. And he doesn't even realize it. And so I finish with Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. This intrinsic knowledge of a creator that everyone who comes into the world has within them is called general revelation, theologically, which is distinct from special revelation, another theological term. General revelation is what I've been describing. Special revelation is now the additional revelation that, yes, there is a creator, and that creator's name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here's what the Creator did to take you out of your innate sense of sinfulness and even innate rejection of God. Do you realize we, everyone comes into this world already rejecting God on the basis of what? The Word says that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. Which means what? Which means I, though I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in God, I can't walk around and go, well, you little peons there, you know, if you had, as I do, you obviously would believe in what is so obvious. 
but rather for whatever strange reasons God had and has. He said, Cripe, I am going to draw you unto myself. He said, Mrs. Cripe, I'm going to draw you unto myself. Mr. Gallo, I'm going to draw you. And he goes through, and by his, again, I understand the universe better than I understand God's sovereignty. So nobody has any reason to boast or feel smug, but rather only pity for those who continue to walk in, in, in rejecting what God has made evident to them. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual pilgrimage. If you're walking that tightrope and perhaps maybe even dancing on that tightrope, that tightrope is over an eternal chasm that leads into a Christless eternity. And God goes through all kinds of machinations throughout history and through people and through means and methods to get you to see, first of all, I am real. I do exist. And if you just acknowledge me in that first and foremost, then I will take you to the next step. Now, you can reject that second step. And if you don't reject the second step, I will take you to the third, the fifth, the 200th, the 300th step. And you can reject it whenever you want. Which is why I say over and over for people who are not believers, you still have time while you are a cognizant, mindful, sentient being. Because God desires, thus saith the word, that no one perish. And it also says that no one comes to me unless he be drawn by the Holy Spirit. We all know unbelievers. What we need to pray for them is that the Lord would continue drawing them and that he would do whatever he needs to do to finally take them out of their stupor and to yield to what he has made obvious to them. And to us to grow in our appreciation of the grace that God has poured out on the likes of you and you and you and me. And says, you're my, you're my son, you're my daughter. Thank you, Lord. How can I repay you? Not how can I earn my favor, but how can I just say thank you in real ways? And he says, by giving me your life. Do you know the God of all creation who didn't leave himself there as that benign or that, that, that nebulous supreme being but came with flesh on? So when somebody says, well, if God just appears and says something to me, it's like, well, you know, he already did that to a whole bunch of people. Well, if God only works a miracle, yeah, he's done that too throughout the ages. You have to go through your life tripping all over God's grace because he desires that no one perish.
do not leave this building today with any doubt of where you stand in eternity. Let's stand. Father in heaven, thank you. Lord, make sense of my words. And Father, strip away whatever shells of hardness have encoded hearts and ears and scales on eyes that prevent them from seeing and hearing the words of Paul's excitement today of the euangelion, of the great message that you are not only an unfathomable creator of the universe, you are our God and our Father. And you came with flesh on to show us. Lord, bring faith for those who do not believe. And bring greater faith to those of us, Lord, who have believed. To your glory and praise, we give thanks and pray. Amen.